Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Hugh James, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kathleen Hallisey. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Alan. Welcome to our latest podcast. Before we get underway, I need to give the health warning, which is we are going to be discussing in this podcast sensitive and difficult subjects, which may be upsetting. And if you think you are going to possibly be distressed by the content of this podcast, now's the time to switch off and go and do something else. Otherwise, please do stay with us. So in this podcast, we are going to be discussing a report that has just been published by the University of New South Wales. And it is titled Identifying and Understanding Child Sexual Offending Behaviours and Attitudes Among Australian Men. So the University of New South Wales has published what is described as the largest nationally representative child sexual abuse perpetration survey ever undertaken. 1,945 men were asked about their feelings and behaviour towards children. So, yes, this is all about a survey investigation in Australia, but I think it has interest further afield, particularly in the West, whether that's the UK, Canada, the States, wherever, because I think a lot of the issues and findings that are in this report struck chord and have particular relevance to the problems and challenges of child sexual abuse outside Australia and in particular in the UK. So I've read the report and I think you have too, Kathleen. I have, yes, Alan. So what I thought particularly striking about this report was that it sort of busts some sort of myths and stereotypes because particularly in the media, one can be forgiven for sort of getting a picture of child sex offenders are cut from a particular cloth, so to speak, whereas the findings in this report very much suggest otherwise. So before we start getting into the facts and figures, so to speak, what's your initial thoughts on this report? Definitely echoes what what I think and what I often say to people and suggest that there should be some type of public service campaign in this country and all countries about what sexual abusers actually look like. I think we still have this old idea of it's the kind of creepy guy in the trench coat who's kind of unkempt and is weird. I'm not saying that those people potentially couldn't also be an abuser, but certainly in my experience of cases, often the abuser is the beloved firefighter, the popular scout leader, the, you know, charismatic priest, the kind of, you know, local hero. It isn't that, you know, creepy person that people Mm. still assume is, is the abuser. And I think because of that, abusers are able to groom and abuse because they're essentially hiding in plain sight. Yeah, exactly. So let's get down and into some of these statistics. And I find them 
quite astonishing, if mm. not um, alarming. So obviously it's 1,945 men in Australia that were surveyed. Mm-hmm. And according to the report, around one in six Australian men report sexual feelings towards children. Approximately one third of this group report sexually offending against children. So that in itself is a sort of horrific statistic. Yeah. Around one in 10 Australian men are sexually offended against children. Approximately half of the group report sexual feelings towards children. In total, almost one in five Australian men in the study have sexual feelings for children and or have sexually offended against children. So pausing from there, I think whilst one needs to take on board those statistics, I think one needs to look behind those statistics because we've got to remember it is a survey of 1,945 men who presumably in one way or another volunteered to take part in that survey. So what do you make of those statistics once we start working our way through them? I suppose kind of the the first and the third are fairly similar in terms of the number that have sexual feelings towards children and or have sexually offended is is a lot higher than I would have anticipated. Yeah, I, I yeah. would echo what you said, where it's actually alarming, shocking, whatever word you want to use. But there's stories behind statistics, aren't there? So yeah. you know, it's sexual feelings towards children. And of course, the law is quite blunt and crude in many ways. So in the UK, for example, a child is someone who's under the age of 18, mm-hmm. but a child can consent yep. at 16 in the eyes of the law, the criminal law. So if, for argument's sake, a 21-year-old was having a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old and that 17-year-old was consenting, it doesn't necessarily follow that a crime is being committed, although it might be in certain circumstances. But generally speaking, there wouldn't be a criminal offence being committed ordinarily just because mm-hmm. of the ages of the participants, 21 and 17. But this 21-year-old could be picked up, I suppose, on analysis as saying that they had a sexual interest in a child because the child is, or the 17-year-old, in all intents and purposes, is still a child, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that would be something important to kind of understand about the statistics and, and also the kind of criteria being used in terms of the definition of children. Because, you know, I think in that example that you've given, there's, you know, query whether that would be considered child sexual abuse. Yes, it wouldn't necessarily be child sexual abuse, but it would mm. pick up, would it not, on in, on the basis of this report, an adult, a 21-year-old, having a yeah. sexual interest in a child because that child is still under the age of 18, albeit 17, and can consent. So I suppose what I'm sort of getting at is there's a possibility that these percentages, these statistics may be inadvertently inflated yeah. because they're capturing that type um, of scenario, that type of scenario, scenario, which is not necessarily quote-unquote wrong or quote-unquote criminal. Yeah, I, I think it would be important to kind of know how they determined an adult versus a child for the purposes of the statistics. And also Mm. in these situations where they did say, for example, have a 21-year-old male saying he has sexual interest in a 17-year-old, did they, how did they factor that in or did they 
kind of dismiss that in terms of their overall statistics when they were looking at the percentages. But I suppose, I mean, the headline really is, even putting that aside, these are pretty shocking statistics. Shocking yes. And um, so our observations on what is being captured in this report shouldn't detract from the fact that the, you know, the sort of headline percentages, you know, even if they were adjusted downwards somewhat, are still shocking and should cause everyone concern. Other key findings showed, and I think this is of equal importance, that perpetrators or potential perpetrators were more likely to be married, almost three times more likely to be working with children, also come from a higher income category, Mm -hmm. and also more likely to report mild, moderate or severe anxiety and depression. So those are interesting findings, and it would be useful to know a lot more about why it is a perpetrator or perpetrators or potential perpetrators would come from what appear to be stable backgrounds as opposed yeah. to dysfunctional ones. You'd expect yeah. the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. But again, I I wonder that that plays into all these kind of myths that we have around what a perpetrator actually looks like. Mm. You know, we kind of go back to what we were talking about at the outset around this kind of, I think, public misunderstanding of what a, what a perpetrator looks like. Then actually, even though this is shocking, when you don't have an understanding of perpetrators not looking like, you know, the creepy guy that everyone has in their mind, then this is actually not that surprising. But for me, it makes me wonder when you're looking at kind of high levels of social support, you know, higher income, those would sometimes be the factors that you would be looking at in terms of, you know, likelihood of offending or reoffending. Mm. And so if that's mm. the case, then how do you try and reach the offenders and or treat the offenders. But I also think the the three times more likely to be working with children is at once terrifying and also just means that we all need to be so much more aware of the fact that these individuals are true apex predators who groom adults in the same way that they groom children. And also, we haven't got really got hours and hours to go through all this report, but Hmm. also it demonstrates that the majority of offenders are heterosexual, which again is a sort of bit of a myth buster and just really emphasises the point that child sex abusers are interested in children by and large per se, rather than the particular sex of a child, although of course there are of course perpetrators who are of course interested in the sex of their victim. But yeah. this survey demonstrates, as I understand, if I read it correctly, mm-hmm. that the vast majority of perpetrators, potential perpetrators, are heterosexual, which yeah. emphasises the point that's been made elsewhere, that mm-hmm. sex offenders are interested in children per se, rather than boys or girls or, or whatever. Again, which is an important aspect that we all need to understand, because it's very easy to pigeonhole and um, get it completely wrong. Yeah, I'm glad you you mentioned that because I was going to raise that as well. I think it's something that I'm I'm still surprised by in 2023 that I often come across people believing still that a sex offender is gay and not mm. understanding that the kind of homosexuality has nothing to do with being a 
sex offender, a child, you know, child sexual abuser. And so I think this was a really important statistic to come out of this. I mean, again, you know, when I say I'd love to see kind of public service campaigns and ads on TV and in, you know, bus stations and train stations about what do these predators actually look like? I think it would be would be good to include in that that they aren't, you know, dispel this myth around their sexual orientation. Exactly. And I mean, it is surprising in 2023, but there is, you know, this level of misunderstanding, ignorance, yeah. whatever terminology it's shocking you, you to want me. to use. Yeah. It, yeah. it is shocking and it hinders progress and yeah. safeguarding and um, doing the right thing by children and young people it it doesn't it doesn't it help it inhibits and um i think the point needs to be made that this report has been commissioned and published against the background that the australian commonwealth government has committed itself to a public health approach to child sexual abuse what that actually means in practice I think for me, it would be an interesting question and I'd like to know more because there's been calls in recent years to the UK government to adopt a public health approach. And you see language being used to suggest that that that's a good idea and this is what ought to happen and so on. But the language and the rhetoric seems to be completely divorced from from reality, because when I speak to politicians, they just seem to be interested in more prison sentences longer prison sentences for sex offenders and my response is well fine but that doesn't address what needs addressing you know which that is to try and stop it, kids being it. abused in the first place you know yeah. that's the for me which is you know the key thing which you know okay if you want to send people to prison for longer fine but you know i'm more interested in actually stopping the children and young people being sexually abused in the first place. And that's where there seems to be a complete absence of leadership, action. There just seems to be a, a void, a vacuum when it comes to doing the hard stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we talk about this a lot, but, you know, the first thing it would be mandatory reporting would go a long way in preventing um, mm further victims, but also kind of, I do really strongly believe that there should be some public campaigns around these issues to make people aware. I think, you know, the general public would be shocked if, you know, you or I were to share stories of some of the cases that we've dealt with. And, you know, I have a case years ago, and I'll never forget it. You know, he was a scout leader in a small community in England. He was a firefighter in the city, in London. He did carpentry work for loads of people in the community. Everybody loved him and adored him. And he was horrifically abusing boys in the scouts and in the community. That is what is happening. And people, you know, mm -hmm. don't want to believe that that person could be a sexual predator, but they are. Yeah, you know, the blinkers go on and it's still a difficult conversational subject for so yeah. many people. We were in. You and I were at Parliament last week, or the week mm. before, weren't we? Mm. And uh, mm. in in the room where, where we're having this meeting, there was all this knowledge, and yeah. goodwill, and willingness to try and change things. But I often feel that we're working in a in a void mm. sometimes because the people who've got the ability to push the levers and push the buttons and and so on don't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe sometimes there's so many 
issues to consider and that it would be better to have a kind of singular focus on one thing that can be done now to change the future for children and young people. But also, I wonder that there isn't an urgency attached to this issue from a political point of view, Mm. because these aren't current voters, right? We're talking about children and young people who don't yet have the ability to vote. So from a cynical political point of view, you know, they don't have a huge amount of political capital. And it's kind of a issue that can be kicked down the road, you know, so that there just isn't an urgency attached to it, I think. And that's part of the issue from my point of view. Yes. Well, I said, you know, I said earlier on in this podcast, you know, when I meet politicians, they just seem to be fixated on prison, which is fine. But I'm sure that that's not going to deal with the underlying problems and issues. And I would would have thought the general public would really like to see children and young people in their communities safe. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So on that political note, we'll bring (laughs) this podcast to... um, a close as always if anyone has any thoughts or questions suggestions whatever please contact us otherwise please join us for our next podcast so it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from kathleen bye everyone thank you thank you for listening to this episode of hj talks about abuse you can subscribe to our podcast on itunes spotify or your favorite podcast player if you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today We'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.